everybody, and welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast, episode 190. As always, I am one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by uh, the uh, the French and Saunders of LA, Alex and Jesse. The French and Saunders. Don French and Jennifer Saunders. I know Jennifer Saunders. I why don't I know the name? They are a British comedy duo who performed as French uh, as French as Saunders, a moniker which was also the name of their sketch-based comedy TV show that ran for 48 episodes and nine specials. Why are we always like a really, like, like really hyper-regional British comedy <laughs> I, You know, I, I can't answer you that. I can't tell you that. Why do answer. I know Sorry. Jennifer Saunders? Oh, I know Jennifer Saunders because Jennifer Saunders uh, sang I Need a Hero in uh, oh. Trek 2. What? Oh, really? What? That was That's her? why I know that name. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. They were, they, they, at the time, they were given one of the highest budgets in the history of BBC television, allow, uh, enabling the duo to create some impressively high budget pop culture spoofs. Do you have like a thing where it like pleases your brain to just be really knowledgeable <laughs> about overseas English language television? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know that he's knowledgeable. I, I don't know if we should not. go that far. He, he's got, he's hit me with like trivia facts. I don't know. He Plan literally has him. a list. I guarantee a list of just like <laughs> two people that work together at one point in time. Two people that work together at some yeah, point. I think that's, what you think that's the criteria yeah, I'm working yeah. with here. Is it an AI? Is it an AI generated list? No, it's not an AI generated anything. There goes no, my, I, there goes my I would theory. Tell you. I'm sorry. I've been I messed with ChatGPT a little bit. It's a very interesting tool and very bizarre. Yeah, except it can take my job away. But speaking of keeping my job, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you know. Probably not. Having been on there, <laughs> probably not. I'm, speaking of keeping my job, yeah, yeah. A great way to ensure that I do is to head over to Patreon.com/slash/ChuminatiPod, where you can keep this show as as light and energetic and hilarious as it always is, just like it's going to be today uh, mm -hmm, by, mm -hmm. you know, supporting us directly. And in return, we will give you things like ad-free episodes and mini-sodes after every episode that sometimes go an insanely long amount of time where we just lose track of time and forget that we're doing a mini-sode and we realize <laughs> it becomes like an hour yeah, it's like long, a 45 yeah. to an hour long episode. It's all here. It's all possible. It's all now. We got art that you can't get anywhere else that's just absolutely not bullshitting you fucking fantastic art we have a new show that's almost a year old now called rotten popcorn where you can watch us watch movies that mathis has somehow found out about i have a mysterious machine that i go to before every episode for movies and for weird uh duos to use and uh, it's called you know? a puffco peak uh vaporizer all right boys the cheer in your eyes and the the pleasantness in your voice it's time to dash it all of it time to get rid of it um, it's time to dive back into unit 731, part two of what I plan on being three parts. I don't think I'll need more, but that's never, never truly. Take it from me. Famous last words, bro. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, obviously, uh, uh, especially this episode going forward, huge, just warning, trigger warning, just this is not, you know, we're not going to be sitting in, in, in like lounging in the horror, but there is no getting around the horror that happened at these places uh, and what exactly um, kind of happened. Uh, I do want to say up front, Jesse, so many people in the Navy and the Army told me they don't fucking gas them with mustard gas, you fool. And they gas them with just tear I gas. Basically. I mean, if I said mustard gas, uh, I meant that I watched a video where they were being gassed. 
whether it was gotcha. mustard okay, or yeah, otherwise. Yeah. I don't, I mean, but it's true. They do gas them. They didn't say that was wrong. No, they said they, the way it works is they all go in a room with gas masks on already. They fill the room with, with like gas where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And then like the, the commander or sergeant or whoever goes into each individual person. They then have to take the masks off and answer very intricate questions about themselves While and just being try to like talk yeah. through it. I yeah, and then after they put it back on, it's immediately fine. They the, Another fun fact I learned is about one in 30 or so people are, like, completely immune to it. And every so often, somebody can, like, take their Amazing. gas mask off, and they're fine. Well, yeah. Similarly, so, as it does similarly I was trying to explain that part. It does happen. I've seen it. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They get gas, just not with mustard gas. I get a gas war crime. Yeah, you're if right. I eat mustard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is that yeah, yeah. the same thing? Yeah, what was mustard. that? Oh, I can yeah. create mustard gas if I eat enough mustard. What if it was mustard uh, brand tear gas? Hmm? That's I don't know that I don't know that that's not real. Take that, I don't know that Army it is real. Veterans. I haven't done the I haven't done the research yet. <laughs> I don't know whether you're wrong or right yet. Can't prove me wrong if it's mustard brand <laughs> tear gas. On it. Can you? I'm sure I will after a quick Google search, but right now we're living in a world where maybe that's true and maybe it isn't. Like the Matrix. Yeah, we might have to do, you know, there might be some gallows humor as we go through some of this shit because it's just I'm sorry awful. if I make a joke um, to try and lighten the mood, folks, but <laughs> hey. Nope. <laughs> please don't. I'm the one that talked about finger and JFK's bullet hole wound, so we're not going to worry about Thanks for reminding about, us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is marked explicit every time, so nobody under the age of 18 should be listening to this. So piss shit, bitch. Yeah, unless you're a rebellious little teenager, but I don't condone it, okay? Uh, today, obviously, I listed all of our sources last week, but today's main source uh, is going to be the book Japan's Infamous Unit 731, which includes firsthand accounts from uh, survivors as well as some of the uh, special police that ended up bringing the victims into the essentially concentration camp. Uh, and this is written by a man by the name of Hal Gold. Uh, there's a ton of wonderful information in this book. This book is great. Uh, obviously I can't go through all of it, but if you are interested in some of the more detailed stuff and maybe some interviews that you won't be able to get just by listening to the podcast, go get the book. You can get it on Kindle. You can get it pretty much anywhere. It's just a phenomenal, phenomenal read. Uh, I'm also going to be relying a little bit on the same paper written at the, uh, ten, uh college at Tennessee, uh, just for, for a few, some few things, but, um, overall just kind of that book that we're looking at, uh, if I remember where we mostly left off last week was basically Ish, uh, Shiro Ishii stepping into his role as leader of what Hydra. is now yeah. known as Unit 731. Yeah, you know, kind of Hydra. Very Hydra. -y. Japan was like, yeah, 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 uh, 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 yeah, rules of war. Yeah, we got it. We got it. We got it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like mind, if Hydra was being like produced by like an indie comic, you know, company where they just don't care about the rules. Oh, it's like the Marvel Max version. Like what the heck is Marvel Max? Where there's like blood and people say shit sometimes. Stuff like that. Is that like, but is Marvel comics? Like the Punisher was Marvel Max for a while. Let's not get oh, into that. I, just come on. I didn't know that. I didn't, yeah. I genuinely didn't know Punisher was part of like side Marvel. You know, like there was Vertigo for a while. Yeah, yeah. It's like Vertigo. kind of the same deal, but with like Marvel stuff. It was like, like hard hmm. Marvel. It was like okay. Marvel with Interesting. like South Park vibes. Gotcha. Restricted. No kids allowed. No, no children allowed all right well south park used to actually be hard dude i'm not even joking what there was a time in everyone's life when south park and there was there's something about mary was the worst thing you ever heard about in media now we're here talking about free podcasts about war atrocities God, any, yeah. a, a, on demand anytime you want three three full episodes i think about it like 
when I was like in 10th grade, South Park was like, man, that pissed parents off. The yeah. world did not like it. Like, And pro-alien. You know what I mean? Pro-alien as well. Very pro-alien. When I was in sixth grade, it might have been second grade too. I can't remember. The whole early, when The Simpsons came out, I'll never forget oh, Mrs. Parker being like, you shouldn't watch that, Jesse. It's bad for you. The Simpsons. The Simpsons. Because Bart Simpson was like a troublemaking kid, and he's going to be the downfall so just like put that in your old noggin. And that was uh, yeah. like, I don't know, Have 1991. You... <laughs> so you know, I just listen. Do you think the <laughs> teachers crazy. ever realized that they were the ones that drove us there? Do you think they realized that they were the ones that caused this by making it cool no, to, never. to watch it? No, never. No, not not at all. once do they think that. I feel like we're one. You know, we, I feel like we're pretty self-aware, but maybe we're not. Maybe we're just like every other adult. That's well, ever now existed, we just hand the darkest secrets of life to our children in like a little crystal rectangle. The moment they're born so mm, that's true that's very <laughs> now, true now it's a lot, everybody's a lot more fucked up now <laughs> we are uh the other thing i want to clarify at the top as well is uh i don't know if i implied it in the last episode but in case i did i didn't intend to uh any of the information that the u.s got from unit 731 was not valuable information at all they did not like get a bunch of useful info from the human experiments uh but it is still true that the Nazis that we recruited, Werner von Braun and so on, did do the work that got us to the moon. Uh, I think you can kind of like separate those two facts. It's not that every like freaking experiment they did on these people was useful. It wasn't, oh. but it doesn't change the fact that the U.S. still bartered and took all of it for themselves. Right, no, but I think like the idea that these guys and the various like Nazi, essentially torturers, right? A lot of what they did even though it wasn't, you know, helpful in any way, it, it gave people knowledge in like a really dark, mm -hmm. twisted sense that like, oh, I opened up this person's body and I can see how their insides work. Like that's torture. They, yeah. they brutalize those people, but they also then took that information and everyone was like, we're going to okay. use that now for good. Yeah, but oh, like, correct. it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it nice it's just what happened but that will be much more of a conversation for episode three my friends when we talk about the ending and what the u.s did and how these people were punished if they were punished at all i mean we live uh, under capitalism like correct <laughs> yes, everything yes. that everything that we have is based on like millions of people dying consumption at its core is unethical yeah there's nothing you can consume that doesn't have somebody at the bottom suffering because you consume if it. you need yeah. to if you need to ever get messed up go watch it might be the end of season one or season two of The Good Place, where they literally have to mm. like come to terms with the fact that like, hey, nothing's good. If I eat this, how does Apple grow? Or my phone? Correct. Or like everything you do, there is some like poor soul suffering to make your life easier. And yeah, you enable it by buying the yeah. product, but you still buy the product because that's the society we are living yeah. in. And if you decide not to, you either get put in prison for stealing <laughs> or... You try to survive on your own. And in even the woods. then, you just stole something that someone <laughs> gave their life to. You know, like yeah. Then you stole someone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then they're gonna cut their pay. You have to <laughs> like, like you yeah. have to sort of like remember that those things are there, you know, and and be more respectful. It's the same thing. Like animals die when you get meat, right? And yeah. like the fact that we aren't close to that anymore is like pretty bad for the animals, you know. And so it's you know important to just. Not it's not that you have to stop eating it, you know, if you don't if you you know, it's that you know, 
you just need to like wield your culture and the things that you do responsibly and you have to remember what's behind everything and you know be mindful of every action that you take that's really can't it. shut yourself off from the truth that's what it yeah. is like just acknowledge like oh these are this is real and don't live in a fantasy world even though it's much easier oh yeah but the thing the wonderful thing about realizing the truth about the world is there's no going back you can't unrealize the truth once it like settles in your mind but it gives you empathy and kindness and yes. you start to care about others a little bit more and it like i don't know but what if there was an alternate reality that i could buy into that was easier and made me angry hang on i got that it's ours right now yeah <laughs> in fact i'm going to rewind our reality a little bit Back to 1931, September specifically, as a reminder kind of what happened here. After what was known as, and now known as, the Manchurian Incident, which is essentially Japanese invasion of Manchuria, they ended up having a complete control of the Manchurian area. The control of Manchuria provided way, uh, a ton of what they considered needed research material, aka humans, and soon after they ended up taking it in, taking in that area, people began disappearing off of the streets. It's so fucked up that and they like set up this like network for commerce and then like changed yeah. it into like a human trade, like secret. That's like so insidious and weird. It, yeah. Uh, as insidious as the insidious movies, uh, the films. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, that's not what I, I was. That's not I what my head was at, to be no, honest with no, you. No, yeah. no, I've never seen the insidious movies either. But so you went full curious. in on, an, 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 on a joke about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what we call yes ending, right? I don't think Hell so. Yeah. That is, that's all yeah, it see, is. Alex yeah. agrees with me, and I'm going to trust Alex. He feeds me when I visit LA. Thanks to Stamps.com for sponsoring today's episode. And I've been struggling with uh, what I would call existential dread, especially if you listen to our new mini-sode where we talk about quantum entanglement. But in that existential dread, I also realize how fast time freaking blurs by. I blink and I feel like a week is gone, especially now that I'm running a business. I just, time, what is time? How does it work? But it's easy to fall into getting too busy and forget about the time you need to make for yourself. And so one of the biggest things I'm trying to do this year in 2023 is planning early to make the most of it. And 2023 is already well underway. It's already been a month and a half, just to remind you. So don't wait any longer to level up your small business and set your year up for success. Get ahead of the competition and use stamps.com to mail and ship. I don't know why people go to the freaking post office anymore. It feels like such a waste of time. You can just do it from home. Stamps.com lets you print your own postage and shipping labels right from your home or office. It's easy to go in minutes and you can get back to running your business a lot sooner. Stamps.com automatically tells you your cheapest and fastest shipping options. For 25 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over a million businesses, including ours. It lets us get access to USPS and UPS shipping services that we need to run our business right from our computer at any time, day or night, no lines, no traffic. It's a stress-free solution to every small business. For instance, if you need a package picked up, you can easily schedule it through your stamps.com dashboard. Bing, bang, boom, you're done, baby. Set up your business for success when you get started with stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code CHILL for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale, along with no long-term commitments or contracts. I really emphasize the no because that's so important to me. You are not committed or contracted when you sign up, so check it out. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone on the top of the page, and enter code CHILL. Thank you again to Stamps.com for sponsoring the episode. <laughs> 
And, but Alex, you are literally correct as to the reason they even focused on this area, specifically the Manchurian city of Harbin, which was a railroad hub, multicultural, multiracial center of commerce, art, music, all of these things centered in Harbin. It had been developed by the Russians just a few years before the Russo-Japanese War broke out, and white Russians who had fled their country settled in Harbin. They weren't well off, but at least they weren't living in Russia for them, which seemed way more important. And a lot of the women were considered to uh, the people who live there beautiful and a lack of other employment opportunities made them turn into uh, made the women turn to what else but prostitution. The race and cultural mix uh, made Harbin a really just bustling city. But in 1932, a few months after the Japanese mo troops moved into Harbin, Ishishiro and all of his associates quickly followed and moved in themselves. Just narked the place up? Uh, yeah, you're going to see what they do with it here. And I don't, we'll talk about it. I'm not, I don't want to jump ahead too much. Um, meanwhile, the Japanese faced numerically superior Soviet troops along the Soviet Manchurian border at this time. And they already were fully expecting an armed clash to happen at any given moment. And Ishii planned to use his specialty to overcome the disadvantage that they had. And if you don't remember, Ishii was a weird dude who loved to grow bacteria pets in Petri dishes and was kind of an asshole of a student, but he was very, very, very smart. And uh, his big love was disease. He loved bacteria and disease and Kept all that shit for all. And yeah, dis for dissociated all from any reasons. real human friends and was hated <laughs> by all who knew him. No, he did get married and have kids. So there is somebody out there who tolerated him enough to sleep with the man. So I guess, you know, maybe he pictured her as giant bacteria squiggling around in the bed. I, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Prove me I wrong, just feel Jesse. like based Prove on what wrong. we talked about last time where his kid was like, he's a good dude. I don't know. Yeah. I imagine yeah. the outside of work him was like a different person. A family man. Yeah, it's literally the reason you hide the shit that you do. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. I, don't, I mean, I don't, yes. I don't know why that's like ever a surprise. He was always so nice. He didn't act like a murderer <laughs> yeah. all the time, I guess. Uh, you know, I guess. It's that it's that idea that that people expect serial killers or terrible monstrous people to look like how they are well, that's on the inside. Movies. They don't Yeah, it, well, yeah, but even back then, even yeah, back in the 30s and 40s, like their expectation of these monsters and when they learn that these monsters, I mean, think of Granny Doss, Nanny Doss. When people learned what she did, everybody was like, "What?" They don't expect her to look like a little cute grandma who'd make you some cookies and kill you with arson to get back at her daughter. Like, it's like, you know, uh, arsenic rather, not arson. Very different uh, thing. Anyway, back to Harbin. After Ishii moved in uh, and, his, and a few hundred men followed him, um, they ended up turning this place into basically their center of uh, center point of operations. Ishii's operation started out in Harbin with those men, but too many eyes in an urban center were not what he and his con uh, confederates were looking for at this moment. To maintain their facade of respectability, they had the Harbin facility concentrate on the socially accepted areas of vaccine and other quote-unquote proper medical research. So outwardly, much like his weird face for his family that we just spoke about, He's presenting as a helpful uh, doctor there to help him and get vaccines out there. Uh, all the while, for the work they wanted to keep completely secret, they very quickly found another place about 100 kilometers directly to the south of Harbin. And the ever-dependable and expanding South Manchuria Railway provided a means of transporting equipment and, more importantly, 
humans to la uh, to send to the labs. They literally used this this they picked this place because it was a very easy spot to have people Shipped just to. dropped yeah. off. Wow. Yep, literally. So what they do, but descend upon a poor little neighborhood uh, near an area known as Bienhe. Uh, there were about 300 homes here, along with shops, with an extensive area of open land nearby to the south. Japanese troops would uh, ended up coming in and told the village uh, that told the village headman that everyone had to clear out in three days, and then Ishii and the army were going to move in. So just can you no imagine option. what are you going to do? It's just like, yeah, somebody knocking on your door, be like, hey, you've got three days or you're cool, cool, you cool, cool, leave cool, 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 Yeah, like, how, do, how would you even, like, how do you even, I can't even put myself in a mindset to know how to, how I would react to that. Like someone knocking on my home that I've raised and lived in for God knows how many decades, small little uh, they village, wouldn't and then react just kicked well. out. Uh, uh, you would be pissed. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. The question oh, is, no, could you do anything I, I about it if they have so. guns? You know what I mean? Uh, they could not, and that's the thing. They literally could do nothing about it. Very quickly, a large building of about 100 rooms was kept for quarters while the facilities were all being set up in town. And everything else that wasn't useful or wasn't part of a building they took and made into something else was literally burnt to the ground. An area of 500 square meters was designated a restricted military zone afterward, and brick buildings just started popping up. The tract of land to the south was also forcibly appropriated and made into another Japanese military airport. Chinese laborers were then, quote unquote, recruited, also known as driven to They're essentially so slavery. Thing that's so fucked up. An instant. It's just like once he had the green light, once Shiro Ishii got the green light, there was no doubt in his mind what he was going to do. He just acted on it. It's like he'd been dreaming about it for so, so long. Uh, so they kind of set up an airport and these Chinese, uh, I'll just call them slaves, were given wages, but they were super low, even by the local standard of their small village. And the Japanese overseers, when brought up, uh, when that was brought up, argued that low pay was sufficient because the cost of living was so low. So it's oh, fine. Oh, that's good. We're yeah, we don't have to pay them much because they don't have to spend They have much. shitty lives. They don't need money. Yeah. It's not like they have large families as like, like China has large families <laughs> and paying for construction workers was barely enough to even feed any that's, of them or their that's families. That's such a dark, that's such a dark, like, it's they, like live, they live in, like, they live in huts. What are they going to do? Buy bigger huts? Like, no, of course we're not going to spend, <laughs> like, that's so dark. I know it's fucked. It's absolutely fucked. And the, the thing is, within a year using this basically just cheap labor, uh, the construction of a building with several hundred rooms was finished in less than a year. It was just done. Everything was veiled in complete secrecy. During construction, the laborers were under constant watch by, by guards. Movements were extremely limited. The number of laborers varied each day according to the work that needed to be done, so never was there more than absolute necessary, keeping as many people in the dark as possible. And there were two sections to the complex. One contained offices, living quarters, dining areas, warehouses, and a parking lot. The other section contained the heart of what this horrible organization was. In sequence, as it concerned the victims, there were prisons, laboratories and of course a crematory and there were all, it was also an area for munition storage 
The area that had the lab was especially restricted to Chinese workers, but at times they had to enter, uh, they had to enter to carry in materials or large boxes. And in such cases, cases, precautions bordering on the comical were taken to assure that the Chinese would see nothing. They were ordered to get under huge willow baskets that covered their bodies. They would then pick up the loads that needed to be carried and were led by Japanese guards into the area where they could deposit what they were carrying, then only to be led out of the restricted area. Then they could come out from under the baskets. So just like, I, it's the weirdest image to just like these giant baskets that go over. They have to have holes like for the arms so yeah. they could carry it. So it's like, what the fuck is the weirdest thing? They couldn't just like blindfold them. I don't understand why they couldn't just, I just don't know. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Um, this new huge facility uh, that was built in such a short time quickly became known as Zongma Fortress. Uh, the character for Fortress has also been translated to castle. So you can look at a Zongma castle as well. And it does in fact have that meaning in Japanese. In the original Chinese, however, it is applied to an entirely walled-in fortress city, uh, a protection against enemy attacks. So, you know, it, it, this is what people assume the Japanese facility must have looked like to outsiders, like this huge impenetrable forces, uh, fortress, so the word stuck regardless. A three-meter-high wall was topped with barbed wire and high-voltage electric wire. The 24-hour guard was then posted outside. Twin iron doors swung open to a drawbridge, and the road in front of the facility was declared completely off limits to citizens and people had to take the long way around to Ridiculous. get to their destinations. It's not evil, uh, evil headquarters passing really by is. on rails. Yeah. And to add to that evil headquarters, drawbridge dog, a drawbridge, any trains that passed by the rails that were a kilometer, about a kilometer away, all had requirements to have their shades drawn. So they couldn't even see the place like this place. Like this place became myth almost instantaneously. Like once it was built, no one was ever allowed to see this thing. And it, it's just, it's, it's nuts how the extent they took to make sure nobody ever saw it. Uh, one rumor told of a young boy at the time who was curious about the fortress and went to go look and his body was found the next day. He'd been killed by a uh, gunfire. There were just bullets Jesus in his body. Fuck. Yeah. So like anybody who came, came close fucking just got killed. Even walls and guns, though, could not stop rumors of cries of pain and anguish inside the so-called fortress from circulating through the village. Less nearby. rumors and more just someone it, heard cries of anguish. <laughs> yeah, like literally. Uh, and by 1936, it was well known among the Chinese that this was not just a prison, but a production facility for bacteria in a murder shop. Some of the information on the facilities came from a shop owner in the area who went into the buildings after the Japanese had abandoned them. And he described about 30 cells. And it seems that there were always about five to 600 prisoners being held at any given time. The facility had the capacity to hold about 1,000. Uh, and I kind of want to take this opportunity as well to reinforce why I think this isn't spoken about in history nearly as much. Because the concentration camps we knew of, we knew what was going on. We went in there. This place was just uh, completely secret. And by the time um, we learned about it, uh, they knew we knew about it and they just shut everything down and abandoned the place and burned the documents and everything. Like they, we, this place was under secrecy from its open to its close. And Shiro Isho, or Shiro Ishii rather, is uh, another guy who his whole life, basically up until he's in the military is also a mystery. Unlike, 
uh, say, Yosef Mengele, who we know so much more about uh, in his childhood. It's it's just like a one big mystery that there's not, you know, not a lot of ways we can get a peek under the curtain uh, to see what was actually going on down there. Uh, and, and beyond that, another Chinese from the region was interviewed in more ye recent years, and we're looking at like four or five years ago, that had uh, this to say, and I'm we'll going to say go ahead and this post one this. is for Jesse to start. Okay. <clears throat> we heard rumors of people having blood drawn in there, but we never went near the place. We were too afraid when construction started. Uh, there were about 40 houses in our village. A lot of people were driven out. About one person from each home was taken to work on the construction. People were gathered from villages from all around here. Maybe a thousand people in all. The only thing we worked on were the surrounding wall and the earthen walls. The Chinese that worked on the buildings were brought in from somewhere, but we didn't know where. After everything was finished, those people were killed. Jesus fuck. That is straight up like evil villain. You helped me construct my world ending machine and I can't have any witnesses. Yeah. Uh, like that's agreed. And that's dark, dude. It's fucked. To give you an idea of what this place may have looked like on the inside as well. Uh, maybe a little bit uh, to a lesser extent than, say, the concentration camps that the Germans were running, the Nazis were running, is that this kind of, uh, for the most part, for the people who worked there, were like a little town. They would go to a shop. They could buy things, hang out. They had off time, movies they could watch. Mm. Like, the people who were in there, on the other side of this of this wall and this building that kind of were separated, it was like they were living normal, quote-unquote, lives. And what people don't realize about the concentration camps of, of Nazi Germany is they were literal little towns where families had homes inside those concentration camps mm. and they had buildings and shops and restaurants and they had movie nights. Like these were like, you want to talk about complete evil. Like they, these people were living in this evil every day and were acting like it was totally normal and okay. And just hearing the screams on the I other mean, side, just it's it's, it's one of those things where, the, the human body, the human condition, our emotional state, we can adapt to shit very quickly, even awful things. And it absolutely sucks that this is their adaptation is like we had like in order to survive, we had to endure some like really, truly awful things. Uh, you know, where's OK, Alex, we need a joke. I need a joke. We got to lighten it up. I don't think that's how that works. Come on, you gotta be funny. Be a funny man. Be a funny man. Uh, okay. Be a, be a funny but man. Big ol' okay. Wait, wait. Okay. Uh, <laughs> mustard makes me fart. Ah, I feel a lot better. Here we go. The people that were on the streets, like just stealing people off the streets, were the police force we spoke about last episode, the Kenpatai. They were the Japanese quote unquote elite military police. The Kenpatai served as basically human material procurement branch for Unit Seven Thirty One and its associated outfits because. Unit 731 was the main place, but Unit 731 had multiple satellite camps as well, which, again, we'll talk about. Ishii used men under the age of 40 for the majority of his experiments. Ishii's operation started out in Harbin with a few hundred men and an annual budget of around 200,000 yen with which to operate. And I don't know how much that is in, like, 2023 money, but I imagine 200,000 yen is... Look a it up. 200,000 yen, you said? Yeah, get 200,000 yen in 2023 value. Give it's it like $1,554. Boy, that's, oh boy. Wow, that's crazy. Boy, oh boy. Uh, yeah, that's not a lot of money. 
Harbin was a large multinational city. Besides the Chinese and Russians, there were also Japanese, Manchu, Mongolians, Jews, as well as a few Western European refugees that gathered on the banks of Sungari River. So again, while majority of them are Chinese and Russians, there's a lot of other people living in this town because of how central it was. And during the summer of 1932, Japanese troops moved into the Benyei region and uh, the village of Manchuria and set it all up and have the Ken Patai operate out of there. This is, again, the fortress we just spoke about um, in terms of uh, kind of a home base. Uh, in his uh, in Ishii's speeches going forward, he describes his approach to germ warfare, which would be the primary way he planned on defending against the Russian uh, skirmishes that he's planned on having at the edges of the territory of Manchuria. He says, quote, he broke it down into two types of bacteriological warfare research, A and B. A was assault research and B was defense research. Vaccine research is of the B type, obviously, and could be done in Japan. Type A could be done abroad. This was the type of biological warfare that was being researched in Manchuria and throughout China at the time. Quote, the biological warfare carried out by the Japanese during World War II was a case of systematic biological massacre against humanity, the worst in human history. Again, yeah, just to kind of really layer how fucking crazy this shit was. In the years that the research units 731, 100, and 516, two other satellite ones, were active, they carried out biological weapons testing in China for the duration of the Japanese occupation. The definite number of individuals affected by their tests has left an enormous gap between actual history and Japan's official stance on their crimes. At first, information on Unit 731 was just impossible to find. It's as if the unit did not exist, and as we went over the secrecy uh, aspects of it, you can now see why. Still, information on Japan's use of live human beings as biological test material has been surfacing bit by bit for many years. In fact, we are still today learning of new fucking shit that happened out there uh, as we learn, you know, scrape a little bit more info and a little bit more info. But the truth and the sad truth is we will never know everything that was done in these facilities. Never, ever know. And I think it's probably good for the most part we might not know, but for the sake of history and understanding what, you know, where the fucking line is, I wish we still had at least some files of like the, the criminals and what they did. I'm not, I don't want the test material results. I just want to know who did it and, you know, the crimes that happened. It's yeah, fucking crazy. Nuts. Several factors have conspired to keep Unit 731's activities from receiving the attention that uh, they deserve. Investigations have been impeded because there were no survivors among the victims of Unit 731. All were eliminated before the end of the war. And in addition, the Japanese strategically placed their quote-unquote water purification camps in remote areas, helping them to conceal their activities. These camps were placed away from urban areas where their privacy could be maintained for people in the countryside tended to keep the, to their own business and weren't going to come out looking for them. Then there was the combined order and threat by commanding General Ishishiro that former unit members were to, quote, take every secret to the grave. And that's unfortunately, again, kind of what happened for a lot of them. They refused to uh, speak of what happened. Until uh, the book that we're using, uh, somebody in, by the, his age of 80 or so, his conscience, 
just won out and he spilled what he knew. But that's and he was a Kenta Pai officer. And that's just one. And that's all we have. That's it's it's just not enough. Crazy. <laughs> it's infuriating. It's infuriating. We know nothing. I mean, it's it's also a mixture of both abusing an honor code to get people to remain silent and also embarrassment and shame and also just like time a lot of people involved are already dead like there's so many factors that the you know i'm sure he did a lot of bad things but the bravery of someone saying anything that takes a lot that takes a lot to do so you know i give the dude credit i don't forgive him for anything he he did but like don't worry america did it's good people know now you know what i mean yeah and i you know i'm curious what we'll learn in the next five to ten years as well and other things that kept this place secret was that uh, the camps were located in an area of china that was loyal to communists and manchuria and the northern part of china had been a communist stronghold before the war and it was the chinese communists who resisted the japanese rumors of these atrocities that were occurring and Manchuria did reach the capital, but Chiang Kai-shek just chose to ignore them. Like, he just was just hand-waved and was like, it doesn't matter, because they're the communists, fuck them. Uh, Chiang felt the Japanese were doing him a service by killing off communist traitors. That's so insane. The more, the more communists killed by the Japanese, the fewer there would be left to resist his that army is- after this entire war was over. Yeah, exactly! It's just more evil shit. It's literally it's like Final shit. Fantasy shit. Like it's like literally the same thing. It's like villain shit. But that's also most of America's modus operandi during the like 60s, 70s, 80s. Like every like, look, if you want to fight the communists, we'll give you money and tanks and bombs. And like, yeah, it was the same attitude that it's nuts. Yeah, man. And the Japanese at the time, with germ bombs, attacked hundreds of heavily populated communities in remote regions in the Yunnan province on the border of Burma. There appears to have been a massive germ war campaign waged against the communist stronghold by the Japanese. And also the Japanese seem to be killing ethnic minorities in a jungle campaign. And again, we use the word seem to because we, we just, just don't, don't have know. anything fucking tangible. We don't know. But there seems to be a little bit of evidence pointing to that that's what was going on. Uh, it's crazy. But again, as we were getting to, Harbin, this, this focused area, this fortress, wouldn't last forever. In fact, they would have to move out in, uh, in 1936. And w- the escape from Zongma Fortress, because they were being, uh, they were having issues with border skirmishes and they weren't able to keep it as defended as they'd liked. So the escape from Zongma Fortress in 1936 uh, was, not, was also kind of referring to, we'll just get through it. I'm sorry, I'm trying to preface something before I even give you the context. The escape from Zongma Fortress in 1936 was a combination of clever planning, daring, and coincidental help from a natural phenomenon. It involved about 40 or so people who had been imprisoned here at Harbin and then transferred to Zongma for blood draw. That doesn't sound good. Yeah, probably not like, all right, just sit down, we're just gonna take a little blood. It sounds like they're gonna drain you until you die. And then that's done. That's what you want, right? You want to get drained till you die? No, well, yeah, but by aliens, which is a totally different fluid from a totally different hole. I don't, but the till you die part seems pretty bad. Till you die! <laughs> but then we have irrefutable evidence that aliens exist, and you guys no, can we go don't. on the path No, they drained your ass and you're dead. You can't tell us. If they, I ever... <laughs> they drained your ass and you're dead, dude. <laughs> 
Patreon.com/slash/illuminatipod. Check it out. Yeah, at a live show, the alien comes down, drains you in front of a crowd. I don't think I don't think I was able to figure it the out. The alien who tried to kidnap me in the last in the last live show fell asleep very quickly over my he shoulder and was just kind yeah, of yeah, he died very yeah, quickly. Yeah, he he did not succeed, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> he hit the vape and he just couldn't hang. And that was it. Yeah, damn. So this is like a badass like escape here. A prisoner by the name of Lee planned the jailbreak for the 15th day of the eighth month, a time of festivals marking autumn on the lunar calendar. The Japanese would be holding parties and drinking, and prisoners would also be given special treats. See? See, they're good guys. They give the prisoners treats. Here's a little delicious it's treat. Like, I don't know. It's what like the... cruel that they give them a treat on Christmas. No or shit. It's like little fucking yeah. animals. Like, like a little pets. Like festival day, they get a fucking treat. Like, fuck yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lee knew that the Japanese guard would be bringing food and liquor, and after they were finished eating, the prisoners would hand the eating utensils out through the prison bars. Although the prisoners all had uh, leg irons on, apparently their hands were free for this. When the utensils were handed back to the guard, Lee grabbed the guard's hand, dropped him with a blow to the and head, ate him with a grabbed the knife. keys, <laughs> grabbed the keys from around his waist, and quickly opened his own cell. Dude just was like, like freaking video game style, reached through and just like, bam, just cracked his head. Uh, down he went. Those who could join very quickly joined the uh, ensuing outbreak and others were too weak from repeated drawing of blood. And Lee had no choice but to go on without Holy them. It was shit. just, if he got everybody, he would have died. Like he wouldn't have made it out. There would be no escape. And leaving them to, de to sure death while Lee and his fellow prisoners seized their chance was honestly their only option for getting out. I, I don't, I don't like, uh, dislike. I don't dislike this decision. I feel like I probably would have made a very similar choice. They ran out into the compound and fortune smiled upon them with a very heavy downpour that knocked out the electric power, deactivating the searchlights lights, and the electric fence. Ground zeros, like fucking dead ass Metal Gear. It's crazy. The escapees came to the wall, made a quick, hu made a human ladder, and placing himself at the bottom, Lee urged the others up and over. A human ladder? Yes, it's nuts. And he, again, Lee leading this thing, like this is a true leader. He made himself the last one. He was the only one left. And as the others ran as well as they could with their leg shackles, there were shots and one round shout, uh, one final shout from Lee. At least it was a more merciful death than his other option, again, if he had, didn't escape. So everybody got out and he, he was like, run! And they heard gunshots and... Lee is presumed at that point completely gunned down. Fucking hero. Uh, fucking uh, true, hero. True fucking hero. These are the people that were giving hope, like throwing wrenches into the plans of, of these fucking monsters. And these are the people that continued to fight moving forward. It reminds me, and this is not a fair comparison, but a little bit of Andor, that speech you get at the end where like, we may not win hell, <laughs> you know, we may lose, but give them hell anyway, like fight anyway. It, it, like, look, even though we're, it's an Andor thing and it's Star Wars yeah. and it's fake, there is a visual reaction to like wanting to stop bad people from doing bad things. And it's like, like let's burn Hope. this whole thing down. Like I, yes. you know, sometimes you got to be there. Uh, unfortunately, not everybody who got over the wall was able to escape. And about 10 other escapees were ended up getting gunned down. Bummer. I know, but 20 made it to the outside. Most of them either were killed or recaptured. Or died from exposure, whose effects were compounded by Damn. the blood drawings. How many got out? 20 made it out from the gunfire, Fuck. but even of those 20, most of them were killed or recaptured. 
And a lot of them died from exposure of just natural elements because the, a ton of them were also weak from just blood being just. Did any of them actually just like get, get out? Get out? Yeah. yeah, yeah. A few of the men actually got out and came to a village seeking help from one of the residents. So like people did leave, and that person was interviewed in 1984 about the incident from a written account on the resistance movement that he recalls. Uh, this is going to be two links. Uh, it's, it's a small thing, but it's be two links just of the way it's separated. And this is going to be for Alex to be reading. That here. night, I heard footsteps behind the house, then someone banging on the door. Outside, there were seven men wearing leg shackles. My brother grabbed an axe to defend us, but when he heard their story, he put down the axe. We took the men to a cave on the east side of the house, and we started breaking off the shackles. We were still working on them when the Japanese came to the edge of the village, tracking down the escapees. So we thought of a way to free the men faster. First, we broke off a shackle from just one leg so they could at least run while holding the other shackle. And then they left the village. Fuck, yep. So they, uh, thank God somebody was there and was willing to help them. Um, later, they managed to meet up with the other remaining escapees that weren't shot down or recaptured. And all of them eventually teamed up with resistance fighters. But the secret of the fortress was now out and Japan could not hide its existence any longer. Uh, they had to manage to try and keep things quiet. They had managed to keep things quiet about this place for five fucking years. But it was time finally for them to get the fuck out because they couldn't get everybody. So we, they were people that I got out. And because of them, they had to change plans. The new place would be in Pingfang. The new site was closer to the city of Harbin, just a short hop away on the South Manchuria Railway. And the Chinese called the location Pingfang. The Japanese reading of the same characters is Haibo. Between 1936 and 1938, a series of villages in the Pingfang area, much like similarly, were seized by the Ishii organization in acts of military eminent domain. AKA they fucking invaded people and stole their yeah. land under false pretenses. Hundreds of families were forced to sell their home and land at the paltry sums that they got offered uh, that were decided upon by, by the Japanese occupation and forced evacuation and generations of attachment to lands and family graves. That had been there for hundreds Isn't of years. Isn't it awesome years. that we don't have to worry about stuff like that happening like nowadays? Yeah, it's over now. We are here in a time of peace and love. Often land was confiscated at the end of the short growing season and families had to move out without even being allowed to keep the harvest their crops for the coming winter. So they just let them grow their crops and then the Japanese stole the crops and kicked them out. Surrounding God. buildings built by Chinese were limited to one story to keep out inquisitive eyes and anyone, Japanese, Chinese, or otherwise, coming to Pingfang needed a pass. You literally had to have like a visitor pass to get into this place. And they ended up limiting the airspace over the area uh, so that other aircrafts, uh, to all aircrafts other than Japanese army planes and violators were just shot down. It was just like, that was it. You don't get to live if you go over there. The headquarters was then surrounded... By a moat. God fucking damn it, dude. What <laughs> really? <the fuck>? Genuinely? <laughs> with fucking sharks with lasers on their fucking foreheads. <laughs> Come on, Scott. Throw me for the boon. Yeah, like this. <laughs> madness. But <laughs> it's madness. And But if the, the previous Zongang Fortress was just like an idea of what could be a city, the Ping Fang complex would grow into a literal one. It was sprawling walled city of more than 70 buildings on a six square kilometer tract of land. Work was pushed ahead hard. And during the months that construction was possible, a Japanese construction company, the Suzuki Group, does that what? sound familiar, boys? Suzuki. Like Suzuki? <laughs> 
worked around the clock. Yes, like that Suzuki, like that that brand. Uh, and it, if this doesn't if this surprises you, Mangala was part of a farming equipment company that still exists today. Just so right, I mean, like, don't look like at Volkswagen or anything. Uh, like, they don't, don't go around. You're like, don't look at it. That's what no, 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 don't do it, there. don't do it. Oh. <laughs> uh, these guys worked around the clock in two shifts, day and night, at the coldest time of year. The water, ground, and concrete all froze, eventually, finally bringing work to a halt. Winter ended up getting so harsh that the very first thing installed in the buildings when they were still only shells was central heating systems because it was just fucking getting, they were getting annihilated by the, the, the weather. The complex was finished around 1939, but again, the exact time when it was finished, don't know. And since construction teams were still working well after experiments started. So we just don't know. We have no fucking idea when it finished. The prison blocks and ping fang compound were called row buildings. The term comes from the shapes of the Japanese syllabary character, uh, row and the cell blocks, both of which are square. And the number seven block held adult male prisoners while eight contained women and children. And these prison blocks served the same purpose at Ping Fang as cages for guinea pigs at conventional laboratories. They were there to just be kept and barely kept alive. Cells were either single or multi-occupancy and were arranged side by side, each with its window facing the corridor. An aperture that could be opened from the corridor was provided so that the prisoners could extend their arms to receive injections or have blood samples drawn. Imagine that being built into a jail cell is just like an arm slot. So you have to fucking shove your arm out so that they can just like shove God only. They're not telling you what they're injecting into you. You're just getting injected and they're telling you it's going to be good or help you. Or you're just getting so much blood drawn that you're exhausted and you can't do anything. You can't fight. You're just kept insane. weak. The window... Yeah, it's completely evil. Think okay. of a good joke, Alex. I'm going to need it soon. The window and opening of each cell were located near the floor so that prisoners could extend their arms while in a reclining position. As the test progressed, victims became unable to stand because shit was getting shoved into them or drawn from them. Each cell had a flush toilet to maintain cleanliness, a wooden floor, and concrete walls heavier than necessary probably built with recollections of the escape at Zongma. They were very concerned about another escape happening. Even walls between cells were 30 to 40 centimeters thick. Central heating and cooling systems and a well-planned diet protected the health of the prisoners to ensure that the data they produced was valid. Poor living conditions or the presence of other disease germs could confuse the results. They're again being treated Two. like a control group of guinea pigs in a lab. In all the gruesome professionalism that built the legacy of Unit 731, there was one touch of what people call sardonic humor. As the massive Ping Fang installation was under construction, local people began to ask what it was. The glib answer supplied was the Japanese were building a lumber mill. Regarding this reply, one of the researchers joked privately, quote, and Fucking the people hell. are logs. From then on, the Japanese term for log, maruta, was used to speak of the prisoners whose last days were being spent torn apart and gassed by Japanese researchers. So, like, they just literally start, like, I know it seems like such a small thing to just call people, yeah. like, a log, but you don't understand the psychology of distancing, of detaching yourself from somebody's humanity and what that can do, especially over time. They are not being referred to or looked at as human, and so your empathy is gone over the time like it's fucked but something so small really is 
kind of brainwashing, it's why some just like of the, and I propaganda know style. Too, but it's why some of the things that are good old pal Donald Trump, when he would say stuff mm. like referring to people as dogs and things like that, that yeah. is like dehumanizes. It dehumanizes. And then the next step from there is, well, if they're not human, we don't have to treat them as human. And that's mm -hmm. like, you just don't do that stuff. You just don't do that to people. It's not, you know, and that's why if it's a log, it's so much easier to just get rid of a log. <laughs> like that's, exactly. It's what it is. And that's why you say stuff like that, because it even helps, you know, while you say, oh, that person's nothing. We don't treat them as human. It doesn't matter if your intention is and so that we can kill them. You give people permission to be like, oh, well, if they're not human, I don't have to feel guilty for how I treat them. Yeah. And, and on top of that, I, I imagine Ishii Shiro or other doctors working under him at this time probably self-deluded themselves into thinking what they were doing was forwarding science and forwarding health and, and all this shit when it wasn't doing. Uh, again, if you can, if you can take people's beliefs, be it in like a traditional sense of honor or a religious sense or whatever, and warp those and convince them that what they're doing is because and for that thing then you can convince them of anything like, no, the reason we're, yeah. we have to kill these people because one, they're not even real people, but two, they're helping the homeland or they're helping further along this thing. So we're doing it for us. And if you don't, if you're not yeah. on board with that, what are you the enemy? Like that kind of stuff. <sighs> it, it, it's yeah. <laughs> Alex, what do you got? You got something for me? Yes. You got a joke? Uh, my wife, uh, I, uh, says I should do lunges. To stay in shape. I said, you know what? That would be a big step forward for me. Hey, I get no respect. Hey. <laughs> yeah, little Rodney Danger. Uh, hey. <laughs> All right. Uh, I feel better already. Take my Patreon, wife. Patreon.com slash really. Chaluminati pod. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, like other concentration camps, Ping Fang was equipped for disposing the, the uh, human remains with three large incinerators. Uh, the way they were described by a former member who assisted in the burning of, uh, of the bodies said, quote, the bodies always burned up fast because all the organs were gone. The bodies were empty. Jesus. Just, just to give you an idea of what they were fucking doing to these things. Ueda Yataro was a researcher working under a leader of one of the teams into which researchers and assistants were organized. He later woke up to aberrant thinking, which led him and others to participate in the activities of Unit 731. And he recorded his experiences, though disjointedly. He later woke it, up. Yeah, he, he says he woke up with like this weird thought that led him to going into it. We're going to go through what he yeah. writes, just hang okay. tight. Yeah, he writes those experiences very disjointedly in pages of handwritten notes. And the following that I'm about to read is an excerpt about one of the research projects that he worked on. His material, quote unquote, was in a cell with four other, what he referred to as Maruta logs. God damn. <clears throat> I'll read this. Don't worry. Quote, he was already too weak to stand. The heavy leg irons bit at his legs. When he moved, they made a dull clanking sound. His fellow cellmates sat around him and watched him. Nobody spoke. The water in the toilet was running with an ominous sound. In the corridor outside the cell, the guards stood with their pistols strapped on. The commander of the guards was also there. The man's scream of death had no effect on them. This was an everyday occurrence, and this was nothing special. To these guards, the people in here have already lost all rights. Their names have been exchanged for just a number written across the front of their shirts and the name Maruta. They are referred to only as Maruta Number X. 
They are counted not as one person or two persons, but one log, two logs. We are not concerned with where they are from or how they came here. The man looked like a farmer covered with grime. He was wasting away and his cheekbones protruded. His eyes glared out from the dirt and tattered cotton cloths he was wrapped in. The team leader was fully pleased with yesterday's results. We never had such a typical change in blood picture and rate of infection, and I was eagerly looking forward to see what changes would be present in today's blood sample. With high hopes, I came to the number cell, cell block with armed guards at my side. The Maruta I was working on was on the verge of death. It would be disastrous if he died. Then I would not be able to get the blood sample and we would not uh, obtain the important results of the test that we had been working on. I called his number. No answer came. I motioned through the window at the other four prisoners to bring him over. They sat there without moving. I screamed abusively at them to hurry up and bring him over to the window. One of the guards pulled out a gun and aimed it at them and screamed in Chinese. Resigned, they gently lifted up the other man and brought him over to the window. More important to me than the man's death was the blood flowing in the human guinea pig's body at the moment just before his death. His hand was purplish and turning cold. He put his arm through the opening. I was elated, filled with a sense of victory and holding down my inexpressible excitement, thinking forward to how the team leader would be waiting for these results. I reached for the hypodermic. I inserted the needle into the vein and made a dull sound. I pulled the red blood I pulled the red black blood into the hypodermic. Three cubic centimeters, five cubic centimeters. His face became paler. Before he'd been moaning, now he could not even moan. His throat was making a tiny rasping sound like an insect. With resent and anger in his eyes, he stared at me without even blinking. But that didn't matter. I obtained a blood sample of ten cubic centimeters. For people in laboratory work, this is ecstasy, and one's calling to his profession. Showing compassion for a person's death pains was no value to me. At the lab, I processed the blood sample quickly and then went back to look into the cell. His face occasionally twitched. His breath became shallower and he went into his death throes. The other four men in the cell who had the same fate waiting for them could not maintain their anger. They took water and poured it into the mouth of the dead man. This way, an irreplaceable life is trifled with to take the place of a guinea pig, and the result is one sheet of graph paper. Four or five soldiers with drawn guns opened the door to the cell, made a heavy sound. They dragged the dead man out into the corridor and loaded him onto a handcart. The other four men, knowing what their fate would be tomorrow, could not hold down their anger in their eyes as they watched their dead companion leave. The handcart disappeared in the direction of the dissection and room. And that's, with the again, tall tall one page above. out of this guy's personal fucking journal speaking just coldly. Like, just these, these people are just objects to him. And these horrifying descriptions of how what this poor man was forced to go through. And fucking good on him for not breaking eye contact and just being like, if you're going to fucking kill me, I'm going to look you in the eyes while you do it. That one last fuck you that he could get. Uh, and it's just, again, just to, God, it's just, it's the exact same shit as was happening in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany as well. It's just the same shit. Human experimentation gave researchers their first chance to actually examine the organs of a living person at all, at will to see the progress of disease. What are you going to say? Jesse? No, Sorry. that's the point I made at the beginning yep, is yep. like, it's the most vile, messed up, awful stuff, and it's how we learned about body parts. Like, like, med yeah, it sucks. a lot of medical science, you know, comes from this moment, and from the truly awful shit that people did to each other. And it's like such an, like, it, it is in a way the human experience of just like we do terrible, terrible things to each other. And how do you reconcile that with like, oh, well, because I ripped out all these spleens, we now know what a spleen is, like how it works. Like that's it's fucked. Like just, just stew in that for a little bit. Think about that. That's 
that's humanity. It's not. It's crazy. And, and we're, you know, here moving into this part more to their quote unquote scientific mind, uh, being able to do all this stuff for for the doctors of Japan, vivisection, which is the what they're doing to these people was like a new experiment uh, at the time. And one former unit member explained that, quote, the results of the effects of infection cannot be obtained accurately once the person dies because putrefactive bacteria sets in. Putrefactive bacteria are stronger than plague germs. So for obtaining accurate results, it is important whether the subject is alive or not. Yeah, Good so they literally Lord. cut them open, open Voila. their chest, and just like look at stuff beaten and moving. And like, I can't imagine the agony that person went through. I like, I don't want to. Like, that's no one. De- no one deserves. Nobody. That. Like, God nobody. Damn, man. Yeah. Ugh, Alex, you have a joke. <laughs> um, have you guys ever heard of fake noodles? I call them impasta. <sighs> Oh boy! And you know all this talk of scientific discovery has got me wondering what garlic does when it gets hot. Do you think that it takes its cloves off? <laughs> all right, that one got me. That uh, one got me. Yeah, it that cracked me. It me. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, uh, uh, anyway, the way they were doing their research allowed these quote-unquote doctors to induce diseases and examine their effects on organs at the first stages, and researchers worked with interpreters to ask about emerging symptoms and took subjects out of cells at what they judged to be the time for optimum results, and anesthesia was optional. According to a former unit member, quote, as soon as the symptoms were observed, the prisoner was taken from his cell and into the dissection room. He was stripped and placed on the table, screaming, trying to fight back. He was strapped down, still screaming frightfully. One of the doctors stuffed a towel into his mouth. Then with one quick slice of the scalpel, he was opened up. Like, it's just like, just no time. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. I just don't even. Uh, uh, anyway, even with the intestines and their inner organs exposed, a person doesn't just die immediately. It is the same physical situation as ordinary surgery under under anesthesia in which a person is operated on, except he's just fucking wide awake. Witnesses at vivisections report that the victim usually let out horrible screams when the cut was made and that the voice stops soon after that. The researchers then conduct their examination of the organs, remove the ones that they want for study, then discard what's left of the body. And somewhere in the process, the victim dies through either blood loss or just removal of vital fucking organs. Um, we have a very brief, uh, you can, I don't know if you can, uh, rather, uh, we have a very brief video testimony that ended up being provided by Kuramizawa Masakuni. Uh, he was advanced in age and weak at the time of the interview and only photographs of him appear on the screen. You only hear his voice. You never actually see him. And his voice was barely audible because again, he's fucking old as shit. Uh, they sp- he spoke of the time that he was working on a woman victim who had awakened from anesthesia while being vivisected. And the woman interviewing him asked him what happened. Uh, I'll, I'll just go through this. It says, she opened her eyes. She hollered. And when the interviewer asked what did she say, he couldn't answer. Then he began weeping feebly and murmured, I don't want to think about it again. Fucking hell. Fuck you, dude. Fuck you. It doesn't matter. Like my mind's like, I hope you relive this every night. I hope you never have a moan of peace. Uh, the interviewee at the time apologized, waited a few seconds and tried again to get the answer. 
Uh, and he was actually able to give an answer through his sobs. And he said, she said, it's all right to kill me, but please spare my child's Jesus life. Jesus fucking hell. Right. It's <sighs> like, I, I just, I don't know how he then went on to continue fucking. I, I, I feel like it. that's one of those things where once you have done it a bunch, it isn't like, oh, I'm immune to it. It's like, I, I don't think. You can, normal people can truly ever be immune to like that. I think at a certain point, you're just so in it. You, you, how do you escape yourself? Like it's your job to do this. And if, and if, and if you say, well, I want out, then they'll just kill you like they're killing everybody else. And it not, I don't know many people that when you're in that deep are going to pull themselves out of it because they think it's wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's so it, it, it's so messed God. up, man. Human brains are messed up devices. It's like it's so hard for me to like put myself in that mindset, man. Yeah, they're complicated and unknowable. It's fucked. Uh you know, they're in the in the book there are um three other accounts of women who are like pleading for their Jesus. kids' lives. We're not gonna go over it. But the point is those are the only ones we know about. You know, who knows how many, if not all of them, had similar pleas I mean, every day. And if just they're cutting up men ignored. and they're cutting up women, you know they're cutting up kids. That's just, oh, yeah. you know that's, yeah. Oh, no, that's 100%. Like, people didn't make it out of there alive. Like, they, yeah. like, the kids didn't like, all right, we're going to let you free. Like, that just didn't happen. And it sucks that that's, like, the truth of yeah. it. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's dark. Yeah. There's a warning it's, about this for a reason. You know, the the idea of secrecy was still very much a priority for them. And to that, unlike, again, Nazi concentration camps, we don't really have a clear view of what it was like when prisoners arrived on the railroad, uh, on the railroad siding of the Ping Fang prison labs. We do have a one rare eyewitness account of an unloading told of prisoners bound with hands bound behind them and laid head to foot on a flatbed wagon for transfer from their freight car to the prison cells. And after unloading their cargo, trains would return completely empty. It was an almost invisible way of shifting people out of circulation. And that we only know that because of one fucking person. So inhuman. It's so not good. You know what absolutely sucks? Knowing deep down that at least at one point during the war, if not before, you know some dude from Germany and some dude from Japan were like having a good old conversation yep. about like what's like the most efficient way to do this? Yep. Like what are you doing? Like how are you doing? Like you know that yeah. happened yeah. and I hate that. that I hate sucks. that for humanity as a whole. Like that is truly yeah. awful. Like this is why aliens don't be visited Mathis cuz they see shit like it, that it, and they're yeah. like, "Nah." Yeah, nah. I mean, I'm not I'm with you, dude. I'm with you. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I, I can believe that uh, all the while, while this facility was underway, uh, Ishishira was flying back and forth to Tokyo's Army Medical College, consistently giving lectures about the works he was doing at uh, the concentration camp. He would always he would literally for his presentations. It was more than just graphs and drawings. He had human specimens on display Specimen jars themselves were made in Manchuria by a European trained, Japan, uh, trained Japanese, and specimens were regular passengers on the flights from Ping Fang to Tokyo. Specimens. Like he was using like specimens, his war dude. crime evidence That's... as shit. 
Like, I know. He brought also jars contained organs. Some he just brought heads of people and others were whole bodies like specimens. Uh, all just being flown out of uh, out of this new research facility in their private airport that he would fly out of. It's fucking crazy. At all this time, I know I'm referring to this place, uh, Ping Fang, as Unit 731, but it's also important as we push forward to understand that Unit 731 designation didn't actually come into use until August of 1941. It became a type of generic term, not referring only to just the Ping Fang-based unit, but also encompassing all of its satellite sibling units in other locations, even its predecessors. All units and facilities were coordinated by the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory in Tokyo, and some of the more important of the less well-known facilities I'm going to go through very quickly. There was ANDA. This was an open-air testing ground 120 uh, kilometers from Ping Fang, uh, about three hours by road. It was used for outdoor tests of plague, cholera, and other pathogens and experimental biological warfare bombs and other methods of exposing human beings to pathogen pathogenic substances in open air situations. They, the tests were usually like 10 to 40 people at a time uh, with subjects tied to crosses in circles of various sizes. And the tests involved an element of trial and error. You know, quote unquote science. They were just trying shit. During the same time period, what the 1930s, 40s, uh, up until the 70s, I think, here in the US, Tuskegee experiments, we were doing the same thing. We were literally just like, I mean, that is, it is like, just when you think about the time period, you think about the, the like, you always think about like the mm -hmm. 1920s and the roaring 20s in the world. And then the 30s is depression. Yeah. But during that depression was super depressing. Because around the world, they were like, science is here. And the number one thing was, yeah. <laughs> Slice open that child. Let me see its heart beating. That is so much terrible stuff that's going on. And all that led to, to, to like the modern marvels of science, which you now have to, again, this is like when you have to put people, uh, you have to get people to like, Think about, oh, America became a superpower because what's your answer? Slavery is the answer. We yep. have to pay for shit. Like you have to literally just sit there and be like reconcile things in our existence. And it's tough for people to do. They can't do it. They can't. They think racism ended when uh, Dr. King was killed. That was it. Then racism was done. We won. I don't I don't think that's I don't that's think how that's it was how in high school worked. education. At least for me, man. Race like, <laughs> like no. This is like early two thousands high school, keep in mind. But like, sure. yeah, like that was like Yeah, the story is is abridged for sure. Yeah. Like big time. And it's let's, all and ends let's at, be very at, clear. People who were like shouting at like little black girls to not come in their school oh, no shit, are still, still alive. They're, they're not chilling. Dead. They own they're internet <laughs> businesses. They're they're out yeah, there. They're connected they're to many politicians. Like Yeah. Oh, God. All right. Back to the depressing shit. <clears throat> so when the biological warfare bombs were tested, each victim was protected with headgear and a metal plate that was hung from the neck to cover the front part of their body. These quote unquote protective devices were there to prevent death or serious injury that would make it impossible to obtain the data they wanted. Arms and legs were left exposed so that they could be bitten by the disease carrying insects. And in some tests, subjects were tied to vertical boards that were anchored into the ground at various distances and patterns from points of release. This is this, this one place. This was uh, the ANDA of uh, satellite location. There was Xinjing, which was under veterinarian Wakamatsu Yujiro, Unit 100 in Xinping uh, or Zijing, uh, present day Changchun. 
concentrated its research on pathogen effects against domesticated animals. So this was the animal testing ground. Test all the diseases and bombs on horses and edible animals of the Soviet and Chinese armies to see how they could poison their food before it even got to the point of being, you know, uh, killed and cooked. Unit 100 was also a bacteria factory, largely producing huge quantities of glanders, anthrax, and other pathogens. Just don't, it's, don't look up pictures of what that shit does. It doesn't do you any good, I promise. Um, also, a kind of side project for this place was sabotage. Uh, the, and one experiment entailed mixing poisons with food to study their effects on the subjects and to gain knowledge of appropriate dosages for various toxins. Additionally, extensive areas of land were cultivated for research into chemicals for crop destruction. So that was that place. Good times. Guangzhou. <clears throat> this was a unit that has been mentioned in an a bunch of documentary films and written bunch of reports, uh, but its activities have not been fully clarified, nor had its existence even been decisively proven. In late October of 1994, a private research mission from Japan went to Guangzhou to investigate the possibility of Japanese biological warfare activity there, and they also located a former unit member in Japan who provided them with additional evidence of a germ warfare unit having been in Guangzhou. This, again, this shit was kept so private that they didn't even know if it existed 30 years after it was shut down. Their own government. Japan had no fucking idea. Uh, the Japan Times of November 9th, 1994, reported on a 77-year-old former unit member, Maruyama, Maruyama Shigeru, who said that one experiment involving starving prisoners to death. This test would appear to be similar to tests done at Harbin to determine how long a person can continue living on just water. God. Is that really, is that like, do you really need to do that? Isn't that a pretty quick, isn't that well known? You only need to do it a couple times. You don't need to just keep doing it over I mean, and that's, over again. That, and what, the messed up thing is that is science though, right? You have to like, do we replicate yeah, it? What is this? Yeah, you have to confirm yeah, and, like, it. The mundanity, <laughs> the matter of factness of it, the like, yeah. the like, no, there's no... It's weird because it seems like they just did stuff because they're curious, but it, yeah, but it, but it it's, literally, that's what it was. You are dead hundred percent on. That is literally all it has them. that like coldness of like when you watch a cat, like annihilate a bird and play with it as it's dying. It's like, it's so not, it's not enjoying itself I mean, right, in the though. way that I do when I'm playing, you know, Tetris, it's enjoying it's It's like stimulating itself in a, computer way it's so awful it is it look even though it's from jurassic park even though it's dr ian malcolm <laughs> it relates to pretty much everything uh they were too busy trying to see if they could to think about whether they should you know what they say the difference is between god and a doctor is that god knows that he is not a doctor that's a little joke a little joke for you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but like seriously, it's that idea of of unre there is an unregulated science, just like anything where there is no constraint on it. If you, if there wasn't pushback to scientific endeavors, I think a lot of the times the people doing them might go a yeah. little too far. You, you know, like, like it is the same thing with with AI or any advancement in anything we do. If you don't have someone there to be like, hey, gang, great ideas. I love the thought of cloning. Pretty interesting. But I have some ethical concerns. Have you considered like, you know, what you're doing for a second? Yeah. 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 Like it's 
cloning is such a like cool concept. However, there needs to be someone to be like, okay, so then we have a bunch of clones. Yeah, what does yeah. that mean? You know, like there needs to be someone there to have the conversation. George Lucas already told us it would be attack of the clones if it went on too long. So I, I'm, it's just, it's mind boggling to me, but I get it again. There wouldn't be no. anyone to say no, because in that scenario, if you say no, they kill you. Yes, correct. There's nothing you can uh, fucking do. Um, it's so fucked up being a human sometimes. Yeah, just sometimes, you know? Trying to square trying to square the knowledge that, that I am the same creature as that. <laughs> I know. It's up. weird. Uh, yeah. Again, we only know what we know because these former members, and again, shout out to this book for, you know, in getting these interviews and getting these quotes, because these people who were still alive, luckily, by the time people were doing the research, had eyewitness accounts. And you bet your fucking ass, if we went in to Unit 731 before we went into the Nazi ones, the Nazis would have done the same thing Unit 731 done and burned everything before anybody got there. The only reason Unit 731 also remains a mystery is because they got wind of the loss before fucking U.S. troops could do anything about it. And so they fucking did everything they could to erase their existence there. Uh, so a former member unit also stated that this place, that uh, for this particular site, that a large number of Chinese refugees from Hong Kong died after they were given water containing typhus-causing bacteria provided by the Army Medical College in Tokyo. In addition, Maruyama talked of seeing victims opened, uh, being operated on almost every day. He recalled that many bodies were stored in the basement of the building. The Guanzhou unit, according to Maruyama, also raised rats for experiments in plague spreading. The addition, uh, uh, this addition to the Ishii organization's litany of experiments with rats and plague serves as yet, a, as yet further evidence that plague was high on the list of priorities in Japan's design for conquest by disease. Again, they were looking at disease as their primary weapon because they were outnumbered, and it was a way to even the playing field. A Chinese witness at Guangzhou volunteered that there was a pond of chemicals inside the university compound that was used to dissolve the bodies of victims. It can then be inferred that since this unit was established inside a previously existing medical facility, it did not have the incineration capabilities of the Harbin and Ping Fang locations, which were custom built and equipped with the facilities necessary for disposing of large numbers of bodies. You just make do with what you got. You know, you don't got no fires, throw them in some acid. Dissolve the body. Same thing. Huh. Mm-hmm. You feel more educated now? I get, like, yeah. I mean, technically, yes. Cool. We're almost there. We're almost through these satellite ones, I promise. Don't you worry. Uh, then there was Beijing. Uh, after, and the only reason we learned about this one is because after the Japanese evacuation at the end of the war, Chinese locals entered the facilities of the Beijing-based Unit 1855 to see what the fuck was going on behind its secretive walls. The building still exists, and a Japanese documentary program's video camera followed a bacteriologist who had been posted at the facility as he described what had, un what had gone on in the days when he and his colleagues had worked there, saying, quote, this is where large numbers of test tubes were all lined up on the shelves, he narrated as he, like, walked around the place. Each test tube was identified by a label showing what kind of bacteria it contained. Six of them contained plague germs. Unit 1855 had a branch in Chinan that was a combination prison and experiment center. On the same documentary, a Korean man, Choi Hyung Shin, told about his experience there as an interpreter. Choi first went to China when he was 16 years old to attend school, and after the Japanese annexation of Korea in 1910, there were attempts to replace Korean culture with Japanese culture. Sound familiar with go what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now? 
And all Where? children... What? Where? Whoa, whoa, modern day. We avoid that stuff now. And all children received a Japanese education. This is also going on in China today as well. This is also happening with their re-education camps. Oh, the uh, Uyghur people. Of, uh, yes, it's happening literally it's right up. now. And yeah, uh, Choi's trilingual ability made him useful to the Japanese doctors, so he became an interpreter. Korean immigrants to China were among the victims of human experimentation, and Choi's interpreting between the Japanese researchers and the Korean and Chinese test subjects basically allowed him to live. Like this is the he didn't have a, he you know he didn't have a choice in this. It was this or just become a human experiment, and so he translated. He worked at this particular branch for almost two years during 1942 and 1943, and he said the following. When I first arrived there, some 100 prisoners were already in the cells. Whenever the Japanese doctors made contact with the people being tested, they always did it through an interpreter. The test subjects were infected with plague, cholera, and typhus. Those not yet infected were kept in different rooms. There were large mirrors in the rooms of the subjects so that those undergoing testing could be observed better. And I spoke with the prisoners using a microphone and looking through the glass panel, interpreting the questions from the doctors. Things like, do you have diarrhea? Do you have a headache? Do you feel chilly? The doctors made very careful records of all the answers. With the typhus test, 10 people were forced to drink a mixture of the germs, and five of them were administered vi were administered vaccine. What the, the fuck, man? Yeah, drink it. It's horrific. Five of them got a at were administered a vaccine, while the other five weren't. The two groups were kept in separate rooms. The doctors watched them closely and questioned them through my interpretation, recording the answers. The vaccine proved effective with all five to whom it was administered. The other five suffered horribly. In the plague test, the prisoners suffered with chills and fever and groaned in pain until they died. From what I saw, one person was killed about every day. It's just like, Fucking yeah. Jesus. Uh, uh, he did uh, try to get out of this. He did not want to be a part of this. And Choi faked appendicitis, which got him sick leave from his job and a chance to get out. But unfortunately, he was caught by the Kempatai officers and given water torture with hot peppers mixed into the water, which caused him oh permanent God. lung damage. And oh he has been in and out of the God. And for the next 50 years, because he lived for the next 50 years, he was in and out of the hospital. Just constantly I mean, like I was shit. saying, you want out, you don't <laughs> get out. Yeah, there is no out. You do not get out. He's lucky they didn't kill him when they recaught him. Uh, then there was a site in Singapore. Uh, and again, we learned more about this in 1991 from journalist Fan Ming Yen of the Singapore Straits Times that broke us the story that had apparently been confirmed that a Japanese biological warfare installation, rumored but never proven to have existed, had operated in Singapore. And he wrote this story after, a lo after locating a man who had claimed to have worked in the lab as a youth. Fan announced that a Singapore connection has been mentioned fleetingly in some accounts, but with no concrete evidence that has been cited until now. Quote, confirmation of the Singapore secret laboratory was made following a straight times interview with Mr. Othman Wok, 67, former minister of social, for social affairs, who said he worked as an assistant in the laboratory for over two years during the Japanese occupation. According to the straight times article, the research unit codenamed Oka 9420 was situated in a building now occupied by the drug administration D division of the Ministry of Health and quote, Local historians, and, local historians contacted were unaware of the existence of the laboratory. Singapore was captured by the Japanese in February of, of 42. Several months later, 
Othman, then 17 years old, found himself looking for employment in the occupied land, and his uncle, who worked at a Japanese-run laboratory, provided a recommendation that enabled this guy to get a job in this satellite uh, It's just like lab. a bunch of shitheads t taking care of each other is the whole problem. Yes, that's all it is. That's all it is. His unwitting contribution to Japan Japan's biological warfare program thus began then. Seven Chinese, Indian, and Malay boys working in the lab were all assigned the task of picking fleas from rats and putting them into containers. That was his job. He picked fleas off of rats. The article quotes Othman Wok saying, quote, it was an unforgettable, unforgettable experience. It was the first time that I was doing something which made me feel like a medical student. Ugh. I don't know if that would make me feel like a medical student, Ugh. picking fleas off of plague rats and just hoping that they were going to not get bit. I don't understand. It's wild. Uh, he also says, quote, all this work was done by the Japanese in the same room where I worked. According to Othman, test tubes were prepared with one flea in each. The rats were injected with plague pathogens. Their bellies were shaved and the test tubes were inverted over the shaved areas, allowing the fleas to feed on the rats and become plague carriers. The infected fleas were then transferred to kerosene cans, which contained sand, dried horse blood and an unidentified chemical. And they were left to breed for about two weeks. Finally, the adult fleas and their offspring, all infected with plague, were then transferred to flasks and shipped out. Concerning their destination, Mr. Othman said, quote, a driver who drove the trucks which transported the fleas to the railway station said that these bottles of fleas were sent off to Thailand. This information supports assertions that a Unit 731 branch operated in, quote, unquote, neutral Thailand, and the Singapore operation was veiled in the same secrecy that covered other installations. I can't believe how like far reaching this operation is and how secretive they were able to keep every fucking single it's so one. like it's so like coordinated and you know again what I mean? this is also you know as an overall look at conspiracy this is like fodder for the people who say see large groups of people can keep things secret if it's important enough because there are satellites areas that we're able to keep secret but you know we yeah, did. but there were no satellites during this time period you know what i mean like there's only so much at the moment, technology-wise, yeah, yeah, have kept secret. Yeah, People don't think that far ahead. They just think, this happened, so we can do it. Everybody there had to white, wear white overalls, rubber gloves and boots, and white headgear. And on one occasion, a rat bit through the rubber glove of a Japanese staffer, and the fucking man ended up dying. Another time, an Indian boy working there was bitten on the finger by a rat, but he was saved by being rushed to the hospital and having the tip of his finger just amputated. <laughs> just like, goodbye to the tip of the finger, he lived. Uh... But the, the man who provided this left that laboratory in late 1944 for another job. So that's where our information as to like exactly what happened there afterward kind of ends. We only know the brief time that this guy was there for like a couple years. In Japan, historian Matsumura Takao of Kyo University credited the information from the former official with filling the gap between uh, what had been strongly suspected about the Singapore operation and the lack of substantive proof he also set about on his own uh, on his own search for information concerning the laboratory, and he located the former head of the laboratory and got a story. Albeit, the credibility has some gaps. Fan of the Straits Times then followed up on his coverage in the newspaper's November 11th, 1991 issue with a second piece on the issue in an article uh, titled, quote, Germ Lab's head says work solely for research vaccines, but Japanese professor skeptical about his claim. Fan followed the progress of Professor Matsumura's investigation into the issue while also giving uh, space to the former laboratory 
uh, administrator's rebuttal. So again, the, the information that we have is even muddy about how it was. Somebody's obviously claiming it was just for good stuff, but there's a, the yeah. Othman was there doing fucking plague fleas off of plague rats. Like that's not, it's not at all. Uh, the former, so depressing. The former head of the Singapore facility was a retired doctor in his early eighties who refused to be identified. According to the article, he said he was transferred to Singapore a week after the island was occupied in February of 42 from the main branch of unit 731 in Harbin, Manchuria. Singapore was the headquarters of the Japanese Southern Army and the base to supply material to the war front. And to prevent the outbreak of diseases in the city, strict bacteriological checks on water supply and fresh food were carried out. The retired doctor mentioned soldiers catching rats in the city and conducting experiments with them and comments, quote, such behavior must have seemed odd to the people there and thus caused a misunderstanding. No one can see all the faces that just happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there's never no. been a more like, that's bullshit face I've ever yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, It's just like, it's, it doesn't make any, it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. The last bit I can, we can say about this place is that in February of 95, a documentary on Asai Broadcasting Company program interviewed a former member, Takayama Yoshiaki, of the Singapore unit and his account of what he did in Singapore falls into the pattern of Japan's methodology for creating plague as a weapon at the time. He recalls, quote, we raised fleas in oil cans, then the infected rats were put into mesh enclosures and lowered into the cans. The fleas would bite the rats and the fleas became infected. The discovery of these facts regarding this particular unit throws light upon the geographical extent of Japan's biological warfare ambitions, like where they were doing this shit. One of the last, and the last site we'll talk about is Hiroshima. The, this on the island of Okunoshima lies just a few minutes by boat from the port city of Hiroshima. And in 1929, a factory on the island started producing poison gas for chemical warfare. A small museum has been established near the remains of the factory now to remind people of what went on here. And the curator is a former worker, the curator at the time rather, was a former worker in what was a highly secretive, dangerous operation. Photos show the scars and disfigurements suffered by the workers. The island's history as a center for chemical warfare production dates all the way back to 1928 when the in installation there engaged in production of mustard gas on an experimental basis. Equipment was imported from France and workers were brought in from nearby rural communities on the Japanese mainland. With the expansion of the war in the, later par in the latter parts of 1930s, the Hiroshima plant increased production. Types of gases produced over the factory's lifetime included Eperite, Lewisite, and cyanogen. All of them are fucking terrible. So important and confidential was the, the work that was getting done at the island that it actually disappeared from Japanese maps as the army moved more aggressively into China. They literally just took the site off of the maps. They're like, doesn't exist. They were like, oops, that's not real. The yeah. workers themselves were ordered to the same secrecy as Unit 731 personnel, like take the secrets to your grave. And as with Unit 731, the Japanese government has shown a deep reluctance to admit that anything untoward went on in Okunoshima. And for a long time, the government refused to acknowledge responsibility for assisting former workers at the factory there. Finally, it granted some of them recognition as poison gas patients and allowed them some compensation, if far from what they fucking deserved. For all the destitution and respiratory and other health problems these people suffered, they are comparatively lucky to a lot of the other sites. Many of their colleagues died before the government moved to grant them any form of assistance at all. 
The plant uh, on Okunoshima supplied some of the gas used in the human experimentation in Manchuria, a reported 2 million canisters of poison gas abandoned in China by the Japanese army has been a constant bone of contention between the two countries. And China has been asking for its removal while the Japanese government has appeared to be waiting for it to simply go away. Finally, some 50 years after the end of World War II, Japan is finally is reacting to the pressure. They ended up finally uh, with an incentive of benefits uh, perceived to be from good relations and economical boom from China finally went out and took care of the to, like, yeah. get something and, out of it they to took out the gas weapons uh and they were scheduled for uh, they were scheduled for deactivation have been taken care of finally poison gas does not seem to fit in well with a booming uh mercantilistic atmosphere and that is every satellite that unit 731 has so now when speaking of unit 731 it encompasses all of that Unit 731. It's like a network of, it's like a network of like was a fucked up torture prison. Yeah. Remember how we, in the first episode, we called the Ishii network. Yeah. That's exactly what this is. This was all because he is King Rooster sitting on the very top of all of this. This is what, this is all his baby, his dream. It's like suffering. Co correct. Uh, and every one of these places was like a massive scale of new buildings and like a secretive fort and like doing all these horrible, like secret fort castle with evil scientists cackling somewhere in the distance, creating horrible disease for everybody. Uh, so fucking yeah. Shitty. And the first fortress and bacteria factory was staffed by only military doctors and technicians. But how Ishii aimed to move on from what had been a restricted exercise in military medicine and wanted to involve the entire Japanese medical community. This was his vision, man. Like this is everything he wanted in order to attain this objective. Ishii once again needed to cash in on his talent of manipulation this time to convince researchers to leave the security of their labs and come join him in Manchuria. He was reaching out to the civilian sector and bringing in these innocent fucking Look how people great this is. to ruin their lives. <laughs> like, in the final analysis, Ishii's talent as an organizer would be evaluated as being greater than his research ability, despite the knack for invention testified to by his water purification systems and biological warfare bombs. The man could sure. convince, he had that ability, you know, he can make you feel like the only person in the room, like he, you're the only one he's paying attention to. Like, that's what his pull was. As a weird dude and a kind of a shithead kid he was, in his adult life during all this, man, the dude could convince anybody to come out. Uh, he would go back to his alma mater in Kyoto, to Tokyo Imperial University, and to other leading medical universities, coaxing professors and researchers to come out to Manchuria. You're going to do groundbreaking work out there. You are going to change the world. Attracted by the lure of expanding their research possibilities, some research went them. Some researchers just went themselves, while others sent their students instead. This, can you imagine being a student of a professor and being like, "You have the opportunity of a lifetime. We're going to go send you with the top doctor of our country, Shiro Ishii, and he is personally going to give you experience yeah. in the in in the cutting edge of medical science." And then you get there, you're feeding innocent people bacteria milkshakes. You're going to love it. Hey, you're on the train. You're like, "I'm going to go be a doctor." I can't wait and you arrive and it's just wailing and, and it's pain. the joker oh yeah. my yeah, literally like what do you do because now you're fucked you can't get out of here you now know too much they're not going to let you leave I feel so bad for all the people that got conned and they're just going there uh for some of the people that were recruited obviously it just has to be acknowledged that not all of them knew what they were getting into and were themselves used by Ishii and his henchmen just like they were just as much victims 
as others here in just a different manner. Uh, there were also students who were pressured by their professors to go. Like they didn't want to go and they kind of were forced to go because in Japan, defying a professor in their strict academic hierarchy was and still kind of is today equivalent to just like career suicide. You know, like again, they're using yeah. the culture and their beliefs and all the different honor structures against them. Yep. Agree. A hundred. It's almost like that's why that stuff yeah. exists. It's nice. crazy. Uh, again, much like the rest of Unit 731, the amount of civilian involvement is kind of like up for debate. Uh, in 94, a former unit member by the name of Okajima, then at the time of, of getting this, he was 78 and offered the following comment of the personnel of Unit 731. And I don't know if this is true. Quote, some things have to be corrected. There were no soldiers at Unit 731. They were all civilian employees. Uh, that might be an exaggeration, however, since the top leaders, Ishii himself being a lieutenant general, uh, others who took charge of the unit in 1942, they were all in the military, all of yeah. them. And there was a ton of them. It wasn't just Ishii. It was like all of his buddies. This is just like, it seems like it was super chill. Everyone was fine with it and even liked yeah. it. And it just got to do whatever it wanted for a very long time. He did note as well, this guy that, well, Researchers and people argue that his statements implies, though, that a majority of the people working there were civilians. Um, again, I don't know how much I believe that with how secretive they kept this, these places to just let civilians in and out. Uh, I don't know if that's something they would do. It's also been repeatedly noted that many of the researchers came to Manchuria for just a limited time, performed their work, and then were replaced by others in a consistent cycle of rotating people through. Uh, which would suggest the presence of civilian researchers who would come for their respective universities, work on a project, and then return home with their results. Uh, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I believe. That's just like one of those things where it's coming from the mouth of somebody who promised he would go to the grave with the secrets and conflicting eyewitnesses of other places would indicate that what he's saying is just false. Mm. And I think that's probably true. Maybe he's trying to, you know, kind of just lessen how bad it may have been. Uh, civilians like soldiers, were given a rank. And there were a variety of civilian ranks spanning the hierarch hierarchical spectrum from the equivalent of common grunts all the way up to what you would consider generals. University researchers made up the majority of civilian employees at the Ishii organization, and their statuses were determined by universities from where they hailed. So wherever you came from, you got status based on how good that school was. Those from the elite schools like Tokyo University and Kyoto, Kyoto University held the highest grades, the Tama unit in Nanjing in particular had deep ties with Tokyo University, and each university researcher had his own lab when he was at the unit and directed the course of the project that he was working on. Uh, medical professionals were not the only civilians to be called into duty uh, for Unit 731. Obviously, there was the wartime militarization of Japan extended even down to the level of children in grade school. For instance, teachers were ordered to scan student compositions for signs of anti-war sentiments among the parents, and if any such tendency surfaced, they would be reported to the school principal, and from there to the police, who would investigate the parents, and teachers were also used to whip up patriotic feelings in their students and encourage them to go join the youth corps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that... <laughs> it's the same thing as the Nazi secret police that they were doing, the same exact shit. It's just so crazy. It's just, it's, it's so cartoonishly... What was it? The name of uh, the 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 youth Nazis or whatever uh, the youth Hitler, Hitler youth? youth Hitler youth 
Same thing. That's what the youth corps was. That was, it was just under Ishii's organization. Boys from 15 to 17 years old would event, uh, who eventually ended up at Unit 731 usually had no fucking idea what they were headed for. Many were sidetracked from their intended fields of activity to serve Ping Fang as assistants to researchers. You have fucking 15, 13 to 15 year olds walking into this I mean, whorehouse. They're fucked for life. Their brain is broken. That's a get them while they're young kind of thing, right? Like you're indoctrinating them into something and that something is awful. But if they experience it when they're young, then they're desensitized to the awfulness of it and they can work there longer. Like that's it yeah, messed up. That's what it is. The, the last bit we're going to talk about in this episode, this very last bit, and the next episode we're going to talk about Ishii actually going onto the battlefield, the end of Unit 731 and what America did with the war criminals here. Um, but, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the discussion amongst researchers as I was doing my reading is that, the, like, how was Ishii so fucking successful bringing in swaths of people and just remaining so secretive. Uh, some critics say that the demand from the medical community was just there and Ishii was just able to answer it. The data traffic was organized so that when a researcher completed an experiment, its results were announced to Ishii. If a new substance were developed, for example, that report would be brought to him in his capacity as the representative of the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory. And the report- would be like, I made this? Well, it was brought to him. And then the report or substance in the case of like a vaccine would then be sent to another Ishii unit for testing. If a professor were in Japan and a student were experimenting in China, the professor would receive the work of that student through the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory in Tokyo. If the results were incomplete, this information would be channeled back through the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory and the experiments would then continue further. And in this way, the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory was a coordinating body that tied in civilian research in Japan with military research in Japan and overseas. And then Japanese military aggression made the human experimentation possible and the Japanese medical community was silent. Time out. Just real quick. Can you... What's yeah. the name of this organization again? The Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory. That is some 1984 <laughs> shit. That is... It's 1940s. But I'm saying, like, the concept of the whole thing is prevent biological and chemical, but also we are literally making them. Like, it's yeah, crazy. Nuts. It's like literally that thing where they say that you do the thing that you, you like, acute, like, the thing that you say other people are doing, you do. Projection? Yeah. yeah. And you're like, we're the like disease prevention company. Yeah, it's it's dumb we're as hell. They're the disease creation company. But next episode, as we end here, uh, we'll be walking and starting into Ishii's debut on the battlefield, where he'll be testing one of his devices. Um, where because all of his career up to this point had been devoted ex like explicitly to developing offensive biological warfare which played an important role in his brief return. I'm sorry, I got the hiccups. In his brief return to defensive medicine, an invention of his a portable water filtering system was finally allowed to accompany troops, and the machine was a cylindrical mechanism about one meter in length and 45 centimeters in diameter. It's this device that would require him to return to the battlefield to make sure it works. Interesting. And then we very quickly hit the end of World War II, and everything kind of wraps up very fast for unit 731 there isn't a long like trial thing like they did for nazi germany in their concentration camps once unit 731 goes down it's quick and it's done yeah. well that's because it was i swept think swept away oh 100 i think in the case of 
of Germany it was discovered. Yes, like exactly. That's on what the ground, earlier. soldiers never seen it. I don't know that we'd be talking about but, it. Yeah, hey, like I said earlier, if the reverse happened, where we found the Unit 731 ship first, Nazi Germany's concentration camps would have been similarly, like, quickly dissolved and disappeared. Yeah, we had no on the ground, like, we, we, we feared going, like, on the ground in Japan, which is why we yeah. dropped two nukes. Because yeah. we were like, they will all fight. Like, that was the whole fear is every single person in Japan would fight us and we'd have to kill everyone. Which is not like, that's what they thought. Yeah, that's yeah. that was the broken thought for them. But like, yeah, yeah, that it doesn't the, mean that it was true, but it definitely is like what they thought at the time, which is why we don't have any on the ground to anything when it comes to like things like this. Like, yeah. And Hitler had that final plan of like, kill everything, destroy everything, kill everyone as like a final hope. Right. Like that was part of his like emergency plans. I mean, but he was a little bitch. Happened. So like, well, yeah, like obviously he was a little bitch, but <laughs> obviously he's a little bitch, bro. Yeah. That's almost two hours of Unit 731. I hope um, eye-opening two hours for those listening to understand what exactly was happening here. A heart-closing two hours for me. But now you know why we know so little about this place. And Alex, before we leave... I was about to say, one more joke, buddy. Give us a joke, pal. Send us off on a light-hearted note. I don't have a joke, but I do have a story of a man who put 25 plastic toy horses up his asshole. Uh, Don't worry, though. He's okay. The doctors described his condition as stable. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Guys, we're off to do a mini-sode over at Patreon.com. Patreon.com. Patreon. We love you. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the... I don't know who they are. There's two. One. Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. No. Neo and Trinity. No. I don't understand, and I probably never will. Let me just tell you right now that there's two... Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield. I'm telling you, I think he literally just looked up famous duos. Cheech and Chong. And has just been going through the list ever since. I'm trying to dig deep. Which one of you is, uh, Dick Powell? Me? Your name's Jesse Cox! <laughs> I want Illuminati I want my mind I want Illuminati I want my mind Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by Alex.
Alex and Jesse. Like a shooting star across the sky that's actually a UFO.